0: To make it worthwhile, to make it worthwhile to actually have somebody on staff full-time to do it, you're probably talking on the order of magnitude of $50 to $100 million worth of investable
1: assets. Welcome to The Syndicate, the podcast about the investors behind the overnight successes. It takes years, it takes money. On this show, we interview the top angel investors, venture capitalists, and startups to share what it really takes to succeed with startup investing. I'm your host, Matt Ward, and I'm a serial entrepreneur, an angel investor, and I believe startups are the future. And angel investing is the best way to build real true wealth to find out more about us please visit thesyndicate.vc but now let's get on with the show welcome back to the syndicate guys i'm your host matt ward if this is your first episode shame on you i'm angel investor serial entrepreneur startup advisor but this show isn't about me this show is about awesome guests that i get on i get the best investors entrepreneurs and mentor accelerator leaders in the world today we've got andrew Ackerman from dream it one of the top accelerators worldwide at this point i think you guys have gone platinum
0: okay if you say so
1: that's uh that's what the rankings seem to say thanks for coming today andrew
0: well it's my pleasure when you said you get the best in the world i'm like well why am i here but okay
1: that's okay everybody kind of says that but everybody also could use a little bit of an ego pad on the back you guys have been doing pretty well so i know what you're doing now managing director of dream it but what's your background how'd you get into this
0: oh man my background only makes sense given what i'm doing now Uh, I'm kind of ruined for any other job. So I I got started uh, and I went to Chicago Booth. uh, Well, actually before it was called Chicago Booth, just Chicago Graduate School of Business, University of Chicago. After that, you know, you leave a program like that in the 90s, there's two doors. There's the investment banking door and there's the consultant door. So I went to door number two. I did that for four years uh, at a company called Booz Allen, which then became Booz & Co. and then became called Strategy and, worst name ever. Then I left, about late 1999, I went back to New York as the startup boom was beginning and it wasn't happening in Chicago. I did my first startup, a company called Funk One. I exited in 2008, right before the world came to a close. Then I spent three years at a family office dealing with a a rich individual whose entire portfolio was on fire uh, throughout 2009 and occasionally doing some direct investments, uh, early stage stuff, as well as some big, boring private equity and hedge fund stuff. I left that uh, at the end of three years. I was going to do a third startup, but then the opportunity to join Dream at a Rose uh, jumped on that.
1: Okay. So I looked into your background, Layer Cake. What is that? And is uh, Daniel- so That was my guy
0: second. Guy? Uh, no, no, nothing to do with that. So uh, we used to get like Layer Cake the movie, and there was a wine called Layer Cake. So uh, it actually it makes sense given what I did before. My first startup, Bunk One, had to do with summer camps. and A large portion of what summer camps were looking to provide their, their families with were a safe- a password protected venue where they could look at their children's photos while in summer camp, which back in the early 2000s was actually pretty hard to do. So uh, when I went back into the space, the whole idea of what digital memories were, uh, not just photos, but also like, audio clips, written clips, pho- uh, you know, just like, handwritten notes, and how we curate and store these memories was very top of my mind. So the idea behind Laracate was to make it uh, dead simple for people to actually organize all these memories. And the example I like to give, and now I'm about to live this, is you know, my daughter's, my oldest daughter is 11 and change. She's going to be bat mitzvahed you know, in less than a year. We have thousands upon thousands of photos to go through for that one little montage. And I'm just putting off going through them because they've all just been jumped, in, you know, jumped into a folder somewhere. Uh, the idea of people is to make it very easy to curate and surface the ones that you really want to see over and over again. I had founded it, I was brought in to be the CEO by the founder who was also funding it. I launched the product, he ultimately said, I think I can take it from here. I said, with respect, I don't think you can. But at that point, I wasn't going to fight him, so he bought me out. And then the fact that you have not heard of later makes sense, tells you what happened to that one.
1: I see, I see. So you guys were pretty early, sort of social media? No, it wasn't early for social media, like Facebook was good. But we were about we, the same what time. What year
0: was it? So Layer Cake was in 2012.
1: Oh, I thought you said 2000.
0: I was like, that was pretty damn early for social media. I OK, I got, you, I got you. Yeah, so Layer Cake was about the same time when there were a lot of different photo apps coming out. Not Instagram type photo apps, but photo apps around But like how do you organize all these digital memories.
1: So you go from being operator to being investor. How do you get pulled into a family office?
0: Uh, under false pretenses. No. Uh, so the truth is, uh, uh, I had a good friend who was in this in this role before. And he said, listen, it's a relatively small family office. So they want one professional who can handle both private equity and hedge fund style investing, and also help incubate some of the principal's ideas. Uh, and some of them were actually reasonably good ideas for you know, someone who had never started a business before. So I said, that's interesting. You know, I could do the hedge fund stuff. It's whatever not crazy complicated, I won't really enjoy it. But the ability to go from someone who started one company to someone who had basically a little bit of a venture studio where you could rapidly test an idea and it looks good, stand it up with a full team and launch it and fund it, that was pretty attractive. Uh, So I said yes to that opportunity. Then the financial crisis uh, hit in late 2008. So I spent the entire year of 2009 dealing with, you know, Private equity funds calling capital and hedge funds putting up gates. You couldn't redeem it. So none of that happened for a full year. And then starting in my second and third year, we'd start pitching some of the ideas that he had developed, that he had come up with and developing them into what you know, idea to business.
1: And at the end of the day, he
0: just didn't pull the trigger. It wasn't kind of in his DNA. It wasn't um, something he knew how to do. Uh, so I don't, that's how I ended up going from one side of the fence to the other.
1: It makes sense. It all kind of ties together to what you're doing today. I have one more question on this. Let's just say in the manner of not disclosing anything, what does a small, medium and large size family office look like for people that don't have uh, an
0: idea? Yeah, sure. So, um, so first I'll say what a family office is,
1: because some people may not know.
0: So when you have generated enough wealth that it's difficult for you to figure out how to invest it on your own, you'll start hiring a team of people who can find good investment opportunities, and present them to you. And to this gentleman's credit, he was uh, quite good on the private equity and the hedge fund uh, investment side for many, many years. Back in an era when a lot of people well could just go to a fund of funds and say, "Okay, here's a good chunk of my money. You figure out who to put it in." He was going all down Sixth Avenue, emerging manager to emerging manager, deciding who he wanted to place bets with and, and actively managing himself. So he was kind of ahead of the curve that way. I'll give him credit for that. But to answer your question. To make it worthwhile, to make it worthwhile to actually have somebody on staff full time to do it, you're probably talking on the order of magnitude of 50 to 100 million dollars worth of investable assets. So you know, not including your house, not including your yacht, not including your other two houses, and you know maybe the island in the Caribbean that you own, like actual liquid money that you might want to put into stocks, bonds, mutual funds, hedge funds, private equity, or venture.
1: Okay, so like fifty, fifty, hundred million is like the small side of the family office for people that are yeah, curious.
0: I know, it's, it seems strange to call $50 million small, but in this context, it
1: is. It is all completely relative. You're building big okay. stuff now. How did you get pulled into Dreamit? Was that another another one of those bait and switches? No, no, Dreamit actually worked out perfectly, right? So I was about to do my third
0: startup. And, and somewhere along the way, after my exit from bunk one, I was doing angel investing on the side. and And like, whether it's, Blackjack or angel investing, if you win at your first hand, you're kind of awesome. So I had a couple of really good investments early on uh, with actually a good friend of mine from, from Chicago Booth. Uh, so I was really into it. Uh, and I got to the point where having been exited as an entrepreneur and also being on the smaller side of an angel investor, but relatively active, I started getting a lot of startups coming to me for advice, which was fantastic. You know, I, I loved it. Like, I, I could sit in a Starbucks all day and just need startups. so I could be happy as it. Yeah. But, you know, I'd be hyper-caffeinated and bouncing off walls. So I was doing yeah, – I just can't. So anyway, um, I was doing that quite a bit, you know, alongside with my regular job. Uh, and then alongside trying to get my new startup going. And I had mentored some startups before, uh, both at Dreamit and at ERA, another uh, well-reported uh, accelerator program in New York. And – wait, there's a lot going on. At the same time, I was writing for Alleywatch. Watch. Uh, which was a publication that was then New York-focused but now deals with a lot of different startup uh, uh, areas. And the initial founding editor-in-chief had asked me to write for that. So I was, um, sorry, I don't want to write the same stuff that everyone else is writing, What wasn't anyone writing at this time. And it turned out that uh, while there were profiles of venture capital funds, nobody was profiling angel investors. Right? Angelists was just getting started and nobody was like writing about what a, uh, an active angel like John Ason uh, in the New York community is interested in. So I said, hey, I know a lot of angels. I'll do interviews. I'll put together quick profiles about once a month. So I interviewed a lot of people. Uh, and one of the guys was a gentleman by the name of Mark Watkin, who was running uh, what was then Dream in New York. And along the way, I heard that mm-hmm. he was looking for somebody else to take over the York office. So immediately, I emailed Mark. and Hey, Mark, is this good for Mark or is this bad for Mark? And he's like, oh, no, this is awesome for Mark. Like, I was told that this was a part-time job. And it's anything but. It's like full-time between finding great startups and dealing you know, with logistics and, and actually mentoring them. It's, it's like a, a job and a half. Uh, so I'm hoping that we bring somebody in, who will run it all. I'll still work with startups, but I just want someone else to do like manage the whole office. And I said, so let me get this straight, Mark. You still want to do the fun stuff, but you want someone else to do everything else. And he goes, yeah, that's pretty much it. I'm like, okay, I'm in. And here's the funny part. The funny part is I'm about three-quarters of the way through the process. They were flying me down to Austin to meet with some of the companies that were going through that office. And my wife says, I really hope your friend Elliot is pulling for you. Now, I had totally forgotten that my, this guy I went to college with, and High School, Elliot Mensch, who was the founder of Dreamit Health. Right? I had totally forgotten about it. I hadn't even told him that I was in the running to run the New York office. So I, I then, you know, I called up Elliot. I go, Elliot, I put my hat in the ring the position. He goes, yeah, I know. I'm already pulling for you. So that's how I got involved with Dreamit.
1: It's a small world.
0: Yeah, and it gets smaller. The um, the more deep you get into venture, it gets smaller and smaller.
1: What's the world like in New York?
0: What miles different than it was when I first did my startup, right? So when I when I first went in and did bunk one in early two thousand, right? And I was the third guy on. Uh, there was no angelist, right? Nobody like that. So if you wanted to find angels, it was really who you knew and friends of friends. You know, and everything was difficult with GitHub, right? So you were building everything from scratch, right? Things that would take you like half a week to kind of cobble together would take you a month and a half to build, right? And and the talent was super hard to get because there were very few people who knew what this was, this whole HTML stuff people were talking about. So it was really hard to get a team together. And we would end up pitching like VCs with business plans. Like, how old does that sound, right? An actual business plan.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: so... Like all that is radically different. Now it's much more active. It's much more organized in a intrinsic sort of way. It's not like a top-down, somebody decide, I'm going to make sense of the system. It bottoms up in a user-generated organization with different meetups and different newsletters, all emerging. It's just so much richer now. It's so much easier to connect with like-minded entrepreneurs, with active angels. Also some BS angels, but you know, that comes with the territory. Uh, it's just become a much more vibrant, uh, interesting, and easy-to-access
1: scene than ever it was before. You've worked with a lot of startups. What have you learned?
0: How many days do you have? A couple. So you, uh, there's a quote from a book that I hated, uh, but it has the best first line ever. So it's, called, uh, the, it's a book by Tolstoy called Anna Karenina. It's about 1,400 pages. Don't read it. Like, the other 1,399 pages are no good. But the first line is, every happy family is the same. Every unhappy family is different and it is unhappy in its own way. So what I've learned about startups is that almost every successful startup is successful because they've managed to do all the key things right. Every startup that has flamed out has flamed out for different reasons. Uh, and sometimes like different, very dramatic different, you no know, reasons. Uh, there are a couple of, what categories of screw-ups that kill startups. But uh you know, every day I come across <laughs> new ways a startup can fail.
1: How's your thesis changed as an investor then?
0: Ah, that's a really good question. So both personally and uh for Dream It, it's changed over time. So first of all I come to this my my background was a product guy in the B2C space largely. Or the B2B to B2C B2B2C space. But it was very consumer focused. Now the majority of the companies we look at are B two B. What's more, dream it used to be a pre seed focused accelerator, and now we're post seed focused. That's um, uh, number two, and number three. I originally came to this with the focus of, of I'm an angel investor, and now I'm part of a VC fund, which is very different. So let me let me kind of break these things down one after the other. So the first two are related. Right. So why uh, why B two C transitioning to B2B and why, uh, actually the role related. it, so I'll just answer them all at once. So the traditional accelerator model, what you think of when you think of an accelerator, um, three months, plus or minus, two, three or four founders per team, sit their butts in chairs uh, for those three months. You'll bring them speakers, you bring them pizza, you bring them beer. At the end of the program, demo day, pitch your heart out try to raise a million or two million bucks for angel investors. Right, and for that privilege, You'll get 50 or 100 grand plus or minus for six, eight, 10% of your company. Right? That is the archetypical accelerator experience, right? That experience was very much a product of Techstars and Dreaming. So the first three accelerators in the modern sense of Y Combinator, Techstars and Dreaming. Y Combinator always had kind of their own thing. It's called kind a of lighter touch. They have over 100 companies per batch now, but the heavy, Like, we're going to get very knuckles dirty. We're going to work with 10 or 12 companies at a time and do what I just talked about. That was something that was pioneered by Dream and Techstars. We don't do it quite that way anymore. So, we still deal with very small batches of companies, still eight to 10 companies, maybe even six to 10 companies. But what we found is we wanted to work with later stage startups. And the reason had to do with the customers, right? Every accelerator that's in the top five or top 10 is known for something. Like, why Combinator is known for an awesome funding network. Techstars is known for having these kind of corporate, single corporate sponsored accelerators, like the Barclays FinTech Accelerator powered by Techstars. 500 Startups has a great reputation for growth hacking for B2C companies, right? Uh, and I can go on for a few of the lists. What's interesting is once you get below the top 10, the brand is not very clearly defined for the other 2,000 accelerators out there. You get like, oh, it's, it's a good program. Right, Or you get like 20 different ideas. But for the top five or 10, they're each known for something. And in Dreamit's case, we were known for our customer introductions or, or, for lack of a better word, for business development. People would come to us, we would get them their first pilots. But it was actually really hard to do. Right? So we had 12 companies in 12 different industries. So I'd have to do it 12 different shops. And even though the corporations would say, we want cutting-edge, early-stage startups, they didn't really. Like they would they say, well, they want one stage later. So they would say, those guys are super sharp. Right? Great problem, it's solved, it's really painful for me. The solution is very clever, but they're just a little too early to work with corporate. I'm gonna track them for six months to a year. Like as a former entrepreneur, I want to put my head through the wall every time I hear that. But that's the name of the game. You just keep on kissing frogs, and after nine frogs, hopefully you find a prince. So that's what we were doing, and we were doing it times twelve for 12 different industries. But at the same time, we had later stage startups come in and say, we love what you're doing. We love your customer network. But I got a million dollars in the bank, so I don't need another $50,000. And by the way, even if I wanted to, my board didn't let me give you 8%. What can you do for me? And our answer was, I could talk to your board, but like, that wasn't the winning strategy. And we had this kind of very interesting offsite at one point where we were talking about this phenomenon. And, and somebody said, I'm sure i it." said, would you take this deal? And nobody dreamed dream taking take the deal. Now, we're, we're edge cases, right? I mean, we're all super connected, serial entrepreneurs. We've all done startups, usually more than one startup, very often including at least one failure, right? So we're, you know, we're not the typical guy that would go into an accelerator, but we wanted those kind of really strong founders. So if the offer wasn't appealing to us, why would it be appealing to them? And at, at about this time, also, uh, we were mostly through our second fund. We're on our third fund now. And we come to the realization that if this $50,000 for 8% is preventing us from connecting the corporations who want these later stage startups and the later stage startups who want into the program to be with those corporations, if the deal is getting in the way, let's change the deal, right? So we changed it. And we see it the obvious in retrospect. But remember, we were all angel investors originally. So if you're an angel investor and you put $50,000 in this pre-seed, Stage and you get a hundred x return. It's five million dollars. I like, bring I'm going to go duplex my apartment. I'm going to buy a boat. If you're a VC fund, even a small VC fund, only twenty five million dollars, say, and you get a five million dollar return. <laughs> no one cares. It's like great. Get me four more, and then we return the fund, and we start making money. So we had to make that mental adjustment from being an angel to a VC, and then we realized that we didn't need that. So that goes to one of the changes that's happened over the years in my own approach. I'd like to think more like the VC. So we don't take any money up front. We don't give any money up front. We don't take any equity. Instead, we get the right to invest in their next round, which is typically an A round, at a 20% discount. Like a warrant. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's technically it's called an investor rights agreement. But it, it, it works. I mean, you could make it a warrant. You could do it a lot of different ways. And the beauty of that now is we've gone from asking for something that the really good post-seed don't want to give, Right. Only the bad ones that are circling the drain would take another 50 grand or 8%. We've gone from something where the deal got in the way to something where that's exactly what they want. They're like, I know it's not a guarantee, but you're saying that you'll come in, you know, you'll fill the last 10% of my round, in, in my A round, and you're going to introduce me to all these leads, investor leads, customer leads. Great, we're in. So that's how we've evolved over time. And as a natural output of that, we've also started going more vertically around so instead of being generalists, now we work with urban tech companies and digital health. Uh, we were working with EdTech, but that's on hiatus right now because I was running that as well. And we're to roll out new verticals. So that makes the biz dev work better. So now we have stage appropriate corporate ready companies. So that's really who they want to talk to. Uh, and we do it frequently enough that every six months we're coming back to that with three or four or five really good potential partners for them. So those things have evolved and I'll wrap it up and then I'll shut up and <laughs> get to the rest. next okay. question, is uh, the natural outlook of all that is a shift from B2C to B2B. If you're really good at making these corporate introductions, then the kind of companies that can benefit from them are either the ones that are selling directly to them or the ones that use them as a channel partnership, like a red share commitment commit to sell or, or, or those kind of things, which means that we end up skewing very heavily B2B. Occasionally still B2C, but only when... Working with a great architecture firm or a great real estate developer helps put them in front of their end customer.
1: Because yeah. business model, yeah, you did. How do you pick the verticals?
0: Okay, so that's actually a great question. So uh, digital health, we got into at the end of 2012, early 2013. You know, like I told you my friend Elliot was the one that had started it. That I wasn't there when he started it, but my impression was it was a fortuitous coincidence, right? He had been an MD PhD. Uh, he had started his first company. He'd come out. He knew health very well. He started it. It turned out that we got in at exactly the right moment. Uh, it had just started on this, this. The investment activity had just started on this big upswing. Uh actually the second most active investor in digital health in North America as a result. So we ended up getting on that train exactly the right time. You know, there's, there's a, I wish I could remember who told me this. It was a VC. And he said, do you know what the difference is between being too early and wrong? Not a, not no, a rhetorical question. Yeah, not a damn nothing. thing. You don't get any prizes for being too early. You've lost the money equally well. So you know, we, got, we, we managed to come in at just the right time on it. Now, with urban tech, there's a different energy, uh, genesis story. So there's a gentleman by the name of Jeff Bennett. He lives down in Tampa. Before he moved to Tampa, he ran Magellan, which is part of the Vanguard family of mutual funds, one of the largest and not the largest mutual fund in the world. He did phenomenally well ran a hedge fund, also did very well. Uh, he bought part of the Boston Red Sox. He owns the Tampa Bay Lightning, right? That kind of level of success. Lives in Tampa now, is a big believer in Tampa. And there's a lot to go. Tampa has a lot to, to say for itself. It's, in his mind, it is a great value stock. So he's down there, and he has invested alongside uh, Cascade Investments, which is Bill Gates' investment arm. Uh, but Jeff Minnick is, is the active uh in this. He has invested three billion dollars in renovating downtown Tampa. Jesus. Right? And it is 53 acres, nine million square feet of new construction. It is the second largest renovation project in North America at the Hudson Yards here in New York. Right? And it's the largest privately funded program, probably in the world, certainly in North America. He was looking to build the local ecosystem same way with wanted to rebuild the physical ecosystem, he wanted to build the local tech ecosystem. And he happened to connect with one of our EdTech alumni, who's from Florida, and uh, his name is Barani. So Barani said to, to, think to the effect of, listen, if you want to build a world-class tech ecosystem, there's really only five or six accelerators in the world who can help you do that. And three of them don't leave the valley, right? So... Mm-hmm. No, I can introduce you to Dream It. I'm sure someone else can introduce you to Techstars. Uh, and he did. And we spoke with uh, with Jeff many, many months before he ultimately selected Dream It. So it's interesting. So, in, in parallel with actually hiring a very interesting woman out of 1871, Chicago's kind of co working accelerator space, to help build from the ground up, he brought Dream It in to help bring in like, really talented startups and, and investors into the ecosystem from the outside to kind of cross-pollinate. Now, the interesting, interesting part is we didn't commit to doing urban tech at first. Right? We figured, okay, maybe we do health, maybe we do ed tech, we'll figure it out. It didn't really matter. But the more we learned about what he was building down there, right? And remember, we think of it from the customers we can introduce the startups to forward. Like, well, if you're putting $3 billion to work, we're going to have the best GCs like Scanska and Suffolk for Postal Construction. You have the best architecture, like the yeah, architect companies, like Gensler, the Fox. You're going to have the best realtors. You're going to have the best property managers. Right? Well, that's already a cadre of customers we can introduce these startups to. So we started digging into you know, what we consider urban tech. Construction, real estate tech, uh, parts of smart city that don't involve selling the government, like water, transportation, energy. Uh, and when we kind of re the numbers, For those things into what we now call urban tech, we found that the early stage investment activity in this urban tech thing that we we kind of cobbled together was within one percentage point of where health was in 2012. So we're like, wow, we have all these customers in Tampa, and we can get tons of them in New York, obviously, in real estate, in Philly, where we're also co headquartered. And we're actually at the exact same stage in this industry's development as health. Like, this is incredible. This is like the ultimate fortuitous coincidence. And when we pitched it to Jeff, he's like, absolutely desperate. I'd love to bring great startups like this to Tampa. It's accretive to what he's trying to build physically as well. So that's how we ended up with everything.
1: I just wanted to take a quick time out to tell you that the Syndicate Podcast comes to you from yours truly, Matt Ward, has no ads and is designed to help angel investors and tech startups succeed. We don't monetize. I do this 100% out of the goodness of my heart and the beautiful networking opportunities to get to chit-chat with some of the smartest, best angels and VCs around the globe, and to help you guys. If you appreciate this, tell an angel or VC about us, refer us to a startup, or even leave a review. If you go to iTunes, I know it's clunky, it's terrible, but if you leave a review in there, it really helps us with reaching more angel investors and making the program as awesome as possible. If you want to learn a little bit more about us, get some more inside information, get access to our 20-step investor checklist, And get invites into all of our roundtables, including cryptocurrency, artificial intelligence, consumer tech with Tim O'Reilly, and more. Go to the syndicate.vc. If you go there, subscribe, get on our email list, you'll get all of our best content delivered to you completely for free, right to your email address. If you like this podcast and want more like it, the syndicate.vc. Now let's get on with our podcast. So let's make it a hard question. You get to kill one of the verticals. What do you pick for the 20-year returns? Oh, between health and... Between uh, and everything you're doing or any opportunities you could have to have. Sure. Add.
0: Well, I, I can actually tell you which vertical is taking a backseat right now, right? So we also had an EdTech vertical, which I span up in 2016. So when the opportunity uh, down at Tampa came up, uh, this was of a big, big opportunity to dream it. Uh, and rather than bring in somebody new, there's always a little bit of a chance on who you bring in, regardless of how good they are. They asked, you know, it was a choice. Either they asked me to step in and spin up Urban Tech or they asked, uh, you know, Steve, who was running Health at the time, to put Health on hold to spin up Urban Tech. So the decision we ultimately made was that we put EdTech on hold in order to, to launch Urban Tech. Uh, and, and the reasons for, quite frankly, that I'm still a believer in EdTech. I think there's quite a bit there. I think they're also on the verge of major transformations. But when it comes right down to it, it was a smaller market. Uh, it was at a different stage in its development, uh, and just the opportunity wasn't as big as both health and urban tech. So I, I hope that we, I hope that we relaunch it in the near future.
1: But so I can't do two things at once. Makes sense. I'm going to give you one more bullet. Sure. Which one? You get one oh, choice: well, urban tech health, or health uh, tech. Not just for uh, you guys personally, but I'm, I'm I run Urban
0: Tech, so I certainly always help things otherwise I'm out of I'm out of you know job.
1: Okay. Okay. So Urban Tech will be the Urban Tech will be the winner then.
0: Yeah, but that's you know, I'm biased, right?
1: Yeah, it's okay. We're all we're all a little bit biased. You ask people, whatever they're interested in, whatever they're researching, that's the next thing that's happening. That's yeah. the next big trend. What are you excited about besides the stuff you're working on? Just outside of Dream in general, what gets you excited? Oh, um, well the next season of
0: Fauda? Are you watching next, it's season, a, it's next a, season of what? It, it, it's a show on Netflix. It's uh, Fauda, F A U D A. It's this really cool cat and mouse uh, series between uh, terrorists and the Israeli counter-terrorist units. Uh, it's just fascinating. It's addictive.
1: Um, Interesting, but, but I don't know if that's what you were asking about. Well, that's exciting as well. Everyone likes a everyone likes a good. And The Walking
0: Dead that's starting up soon
1: too. The walk- oh, I managed to escape that. They're still running that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that brings up an interesting question. For startups that you're working with, how do you know or how do you advise startups when to launch new products, when to scale versus when to keep going with what's working?
0: Sure. So that, I mean, that's, a, that's a great question. So uh, it is brutally hard to make one thing work, So I don't usually tell them to try to do two things, certainly not the earliest, earliest stages, right? Uh, anytime I come across a startup at the seed or A round, like, oh, we had these two products. I'm like, no, you don't. You have zero products. You gotta get one to actually work. And usually you can tell which one gets the appropriate traction, and you should put all your you know, all your bet on that one. Uh, then the question becomes if you're a later stage, you're as a B round company. Right? So let, let me actually explain why I think it's B-round. So when you're a seed round company, you're proving product market fit. You're really just showing that, hey, what I've built, they're actually willing to pay for. You only need a few customers for that. For an A round, you need to prove that you're actually getting a sales funnel that works. Like It's not just me being a great salesperson. I can build a sales team. I can repeat it. I know here are the six stages of the sale. I know I get 10% drop off here, 7% here, 13% here. Bottom of the funnel, one in every eight companies or eight prospects will convert. But I understand those metrics. I've gone from somehow I managed to get sales, so I have a machine. And I, I, it's not optimized, but it's good enough, and it works. So I'm raising my B round to hire more people and repeat it and then fine-tune that engine, right? So once you're at the stage where you can rinse and repeat a little bit, right, I'm going to bring in a, a really seasoned SVP of sales, and he's going to build out a 10-person sales team and then up a 50-person sales team in my C round. Once you're at that point, you as the founder have the mental bandwidth, maybe to start thinking about other related products, right? Uh, or other related, I mean, features, products, is kind of a gray line between it. Uh, it may not be the right answer. The right answer might be to just keep on blowing that out. Like if you're uh, an Uber or a Lyft or a plated or a Blue Apron where you have a city-by-city city model, then really you shouldn't be doing new products. You should be rolling out new cities, right? One city, two cities, six cities, 12 cities, right? That's your model. Uh, but if you're a national to begin with, and you know maybe the answer is your expansion is down to other product verticals, adjacent verticals.
1: I think the city by city model can actually be quite dangerous because people assume there's international or national network effects, and there really aren't. You don't care. Um, yeah, so that's, that's yeah. I
0: would actually go the other way around, right? So a lot of if you're there, if you're like a blue anchor, there's very little uh, economies of scale across different geographies.
1: Mm-hmm. But it becomes a land
0: grab. This is usually. Room for two or three competitors in any one city, and everyone else, it's just the consumer, especially it's consumer facing, it doesn't have the mental bandwidth to remember more than two or three. Uh, plus, once, if there are economies of scale within that city, right, once you've sucked up a good portion of the market, it's very difficult for a fourth you know, company to come in. So, uh, if you have that kind of model where you've proven it out in one city, then you proved it out at a different city just to prove that, that wasn't a fluke you then want to start raising and, and just plant the flag in as many cities as possible because imitators are starting to come up, right? And you want to get there before your imitators seizes, you know, the high ground in those cities. Uh, so you'll try to get the best cities in the U.S. and you'll lose a couple of cities in the second tier to competitors in the U.S. And very often, by the time you're ready to go international, someone else, like the Rocket Internet Brothers has already stolen Europe, right, or, or Brazil. But yeah, in that case, I would say, you focus on franchising in the cities. That should be your entire focus as a founder,
1: not other products. See, but franchising is different than expanding how both of those yeah, companies... I use that word in single quotes. What I mean is, I don't mean going out there and, and actually giving away the economics. I'm I think that's a exploring. better model. <laughs> I, th- I think Blue Apron and Uber are both in trouble. So do we have another half hour to talk about that? Uh, we, can, we can if you want to. Uh,
0: no, I'm, I'm going to pass on it. I'm just going to say... Uh, what I mean by it is once you've proven it out in two or three geographies that are different enough that you know what works and what doesn't work, or well, where what you do works and where it doesn't work, then you should be saying, okay, I know that these 20 cities are good targets for me. I know exactly how to make those 20 cities go. I need to find the people who are going to make that city go The City managers for each one of them, give them the money so they can build teams and get them going. You know, I, I'm actually biased to owning it myself. Uh, for anything that's even reasonably complex, uh, if it's very simple, then yeah, McDonald's model would be better. But okay. you know, that'll be a stand-in for another twenty-minute conversation about.
1: Yeah, we'll, we'll agree, to, to agree. I've yeah. ripped apart both of their business models. I think they both are very flawed, but that's a that's a whole other conversation.
0: Yep, and it's going to cost you liquor.
1: Yeah, I, I'm a coffee guy, but I don't I don't mind buying you liquor. Yeah. So let's jump into the lightning round. How's that sound? Sure. What's the first investment you did?
0: Uh, the first one was actually atypical. It was a company called uh, Avid RP. So it was a radiopharmaceutical. pharmaceutical. what it did was uh, this compound, that you would take before getting a, 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 a PAC scan, or before getting a, a certain MRI, mm-hmm. you would take it and it would bind with amyloid plaques, if you had any, in your brain. Amyloid plaques are correlated with the progression of Alzheimer's. So we don't know if it causes it or if they're just a byproduct. But the more you have, the more Alzheimer's you have. And there was no direct way to figure out if somebody had Alzheimer's at that point in time. You would give people cognitive tests. It could just be a bad day. It could be a dementia instead of Alzheimer's. So what that meant was uh, you could not be certain that the person that was in a drug trial for an Alzheimer's drug actually had Alzheimer's. Or bigger picture, you're 50 years old. You can't remember where your keys are. Did you just lose your keys or is that a real problem? So the big, big image, the big, big uh, end of you know, pot of the gold, uh, pot, pot of gold again. The rainbow was it becomes like the same way you get a prostate exam when you're 50. You would get one of these exams uh, every 10 years just to make sure that you aren't at risk. And if it was the beginning of risk, you could start taking future medications prophylactically to, to push off. You know, ultimately it was sold to Eli Lilly. Was a very good exit. Once I got my money, I stopped tracking it though. So I don't, I don't know where they
1: are. I've heard there's correlations between Alzheimer's and some type of yeast growth in the brain. The yeast growth, I don't know anything about. Uh, amyloid plaques is what I know. Okay. Again, what it was
0: atypical for me. My friend from yeah. Chicago, Booth brought it in, and I said, "That seems really big." What do I know? Sure, I'm in. And then I got it, was a it Worked day. out well. Uh,
1: two yeah. biggest hits today.
0: Can you dream it. Well, let's talk well, about I'm the answer. Yeah, Clarity uh, was pretty good. That's probably one of my my number one hits as an angel investor. In Dream It, uh, from my very, very first cohort that I ever ran was a company called Head Out. They do they like to call themselves uh, hotels tonight, but for activities in a given city. You show up in a city, you open it up, these are all things you can do within the next forty eight hours. They've raised the B round already. I think they're in ten or fifteen cities. And, and I knew them well. Right? They were fantastic entrepreneurs. It was just it's just been a pleasure to see them grow. They were they came in, in two thousand fourteen, so they're they're one of, my, one of my
1: favorites. What about anti-portfolio? We always like the strikeouts. Oh,
0: okay. Man, that's a lot. There, there's one that's the fish that got away. Um, there's a company also in that portfolio. They were almost closed with their round before demo day, back when we did demo day. They were a social play. They were around living location-tagged reminders, either for yourself. Like, I get out of the subway, my phone will remind me, Moron, you have to go get milk, right? Oh, and I, pass the, I just passed you know, the grocery store. Because right? I always would end up like, I more light bulbs. I'd walk past a hardware store 20 times without remembering. Mm-hmm. Or for other people, like your wife could do it for you. Or even just purely social, right? I had the best margarita at this club. And then when your buddies come by there, it pops up. Uh, so it was really good, and they were getting great traction. But uh, the fa- and this is public, this is not, um, nothing, nothing hidden here. The founder was very young. He had been in an MD-PhD program. He ultimately did not pursue the MD. Uh, but when he was asked about the MD and due diligence, it was still on his, his uh, LinkedIn portfolio. Rather than, as you and I would simply say, But oh, that's on my LinkedIn portfolio? Oh, I should have taken it down. I don't really use LinkedIn. Well, that's ancient history. I didn't actually do it. He said, oh, yeah, that's coming along nicely. Uh, and the moment the moment anything is not 100% true, mm-hmm. it all goes downhill. So that round fell apart, uh, and the company fell apart. Uh, and I still think it would have been the next Snapchat.
1: Damn, I will hopefully something a little bit nicer. But it was a happy ending. It was a happy ending. Uh,
0: after a couple of years in the wilderness, he got back on on the horse, and he's got another startup uh, in the health space, and it's doing very well. Whatever. So happy endings.
1: Sorry about that. I'm, I'm actually getting the two-minute warning on the room. No worries. Okay, it's time to go. We're in the red zone. Okay. So, so what are you scared of? What am I scared of? That's a very good question. Uh,
0: you know, thinking like a VC, I know certain companies, I just know a certain percentage of my portfolio is not going to succeed. So I'm not scared of uh, taking that kind of risk. I mean, I guess for my own personal future, I just need to know that enough, Of the companies that we back are going to succeed and succeed big. So that five, six, seven years down the road, the fund does really well. And I do personally really well. So uh, in a way, what scares me is that the decisions I make now, I don't know if they're good decisions for a lot of years. Which means that for someone who wants to learn from their mistakes or successes, it's a very long lag time. Like I could be making horrible mistakes right now, and I don't know for another eight years. God, I hope not.
1: Uncertainty makes it a much larger multiplier than risk, though. One last question. Someone calls today and says, hey, we want you to take the CEO job. Who do you say yes to? Oh. Assuming, of course, that your employer is not listening to this and they'd be totally cool with it. Yeah, and I'll you...
0: say I wouldn't take uh, well, it depends. If it was a lot of depends. If it's a reasonably successful startup and they're doing great, Like, i want to know like, why. The only real good answer to that question, the best answer is like, we love this guy, but he was just hit by a truck. Not for him. That's a horrible answer for him. Mm-hmm. But in terms of like the opportunity being great, you know it, it, that's the only way I would take the reins of a startup. Either that or like the founder was like, I've got it to this point. I know I can't do it beyond that. I want you. Uh, in terms of a large company, probably wouldn't take the CEO role. Chief innovation officer, I might take a role like that. Uh, but it would have to be the kind of company that really kind of gets it. I know the guy who is in this role at, at the company I'm about to mention. He's not going anywhere. I don't think I'm in the running for it, so don't read anything into it. But one example of a company that I think does it very well is Samsung. Okay. Right? So a company that's got, you know, that has good high level buy in and has put a process together. Um, and the processes that they have are actually quite good. So that, those are the only ones that are kind of tempting.
1: Those are both pretty interesting. And I know you need to go save startups from themselves. So where's the best place for people to find you online?
0: Me online? Very simple. Uh, Andrew at dreamit.com. That's my email address. If you email me, be concise because I answer short emails a lot faster than I answer long emails. You could also find me on LinkedIn, but please reach out to me first before you just blindly link to me uh, because I keep my LinkedIn network restricted to people I actually know who I can ask for introductions. Uh, And if you're vaguely curious about what I write about. I have uh, everything that I write about, I republish on my blog
1: as com. Awesome. We will throw links and all of that great stuff into the show notes. Thanks for it's coming on fun. today, Andrew. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. And thanks for tuning in, guys. The syndicate.vc You know what to do. Cheers. Thanks for listening to The Syndicate, the podcast where angel investors and VCs go off the cuff and discuss the ins and outs of the venture ecosystem. We're here to share the tips and tricks of the best in the business, because startups and tech make the pie bigger. To learn more about us and what we do, visit thesyndicate.vc. And to join our syndicate on AngelList, just go to thesyndicate.vc slash join and get access to some of the best startup deals. This has been another episode of The Syndicate. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you guys again next week.